playable learning we are talking about today. And don't you dare call it gamification, because then I have to take out my wrath on you. And we'll talk about that later. Why? But you know what? We've got two great guests. We've got Tad Lechman and Micah Sawyer, two experts in the field of games. And we're going to talk about how you can use games to help people learn on this episode of the Learning Geeks podcast, which starts right now. Gentlemen, Ooh, the wrath welcome. of Bob. I don't want to hear the wrath of <laughs> I know, Bob. watch out for that. <laughs> right yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. But uh, hello, everybody. We are super glad you're here. Um, this is a unique episode of the Learning Geeks podcast because it is the first time that we've had two guests on at once. Uh, part of the reason we are doing that, it, well, part of the reason why we usually only have one is because the software that we use to record our podcasts only let you have four people on at once. And so usually there's three of us geeks and then a guest. But Jake isn't here today. Jake is at Disneyland with his family. And when we wrap up here, I'm going to go down there and join them. So that should be fun. Ted, oh, no, you're you're at home. I can see you're at home. So you can't just pop over. Um, I cannot, unfortunately. And Micah, you live somewhere in the middle of... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm up in Ohio, so that would be a challenge. For some reason, yeah. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. So so Jake's not here, but again, Tab, what was it you said earlier when we were in the green room about... His, his punishment for not being here and for being at Disneyland is he gets to edit this episode. That's right. So he very well may insert himself talking and, you know, like, we might stop here and then he's going to come and berate us. But anyway, if you hear Jake, it's all later... We're happy to have Tad and Micah here, but you know what? Tad and Micah have never met each other. So let's start by having you introduce yourself to our audience and to in each other. And let's start with Micah, because I'm looking at you right now. All right. Uh, hi, all. Uh, Micah Sawyer. Uh, I uh, work for a company called Root, uh, recently a part of Accenture. So I get to uh, work with uh, Dana and Bob. And... Um, I am a full-time uh, games-based learning simulations and immersive experience designer. So uh, get to make lots of playable, experimental, crazy, weird learning stuff to communicate strategy and, and those aspects as well. Uh, on the side, I make uh, board games for fun, puzzles for fun, interactive narratives, escape rooms, uh, neat stuff like that. Ba basically, anytime you have an opportunity to like dive into a world, get lost into it for a little world and challenge your perspective. Those things get me excited. So I just kind of on my free time dig into seeing that sort of stuff. That's amazing. Uh, Tad, tell us about you. My name is Tad Lechman. Uh, I am currently the director of learning and development for Activision Blizzard King uh, and also the Dean of Level Up You, which is our new program to help folks get into their first job as a game developer with some on-ramp of training. Um, but I do this weird thing where I bounce back and forth. My career has two parallel but connected paths. One is working in entertainment, game development, and film and animation and visual effects. And the other is learning, either learning within those domains, uh, which is what I'm doing now, or uh, teaching at university. And I just uh, most recently was teaching at UC Santa Cruz, teaching, teaching game development classes there for the last five years. So I'm returning to game development. Um, as of the four months ago. Yes, and I have, a, I have a rising senior at UC Santa Cruz who lives in my house who is sad beyond despair that Tad has gone back to corporate. But um, 
Tad and I, Micah, Tad and I worked together at Riot Games, which uh, a read from our LinkedIn uh, backgrounds would reveal to everybody. Um, and Tad has been on the Learning Geeks before, but we have never talked about games for learning or playable learning. We've only yeah. talked about your experience as a faculty yes. member. And, and we always are like, <laughs> we need to have you back on and talk about games for learning. And finally, it's happening. So that's absolutely fantastic. Yay. So um, let's start. And let's talk uh, about just really quick. Let's keep this really quick because I think people have heard me complain about this enough. <laughs> like <laughs> the difference between a learning game and gamification and why mm. one is the best thing since sliced bread and the <laughs> other one is the scourge of the devil. Or moldy bread. Micah, Tad, do either of you have an opinion on that? So uh, so I definitely have an opinion on that. And I think you might be actually missing one one nuance. Okay, so, I, so we typically try and break it out. So we have game-based learning. Yep. Simulation. Okay. And oh, yeah. gamification. Yeah. And so when we try and think about those, so games-based learning is typically, uh, you know, it's th th you are learning while you're playing. The game is a metaphor for a challenge or an overcoming. And by just experiencing the game, your mindset, your strategy, your perspectives are changing, right? Yes. Uh, and then the way we view simulation is simulation is a safe place to practice skills or tactics. There, it's less about mindset shift. It's about less about like blowing your mind and making you think differently. And it's more about saying, hey, here's something you're not familiar with. Get in and do it. Yeah, you're going to practice. Get some reps. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. And then gamification is, uh, in, in my perspective, uh, rudely, surgically removing the fun aspects of games that like trigger dopamine hits to make you get excited and feel like you're doing something neat, and then just like surgically grafting them onto tasks you don't want to do to convince your brain that it's worthwhile. Yes, and I, I will say that it, there's sometimes that makes sense. There is, but it 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 is a little bit of a a like an evil art form. Of like yes. stealing from the good parts of games and like latching on it. It's it's like it's pouring it's pouring a Velveeta on your broccoli. Yes. And you know, I, I latched onto that point of view. Michael, we're on the same page with that. I don't think we've had that discussion, so I'm happy that no, you're right. No, I don't think we have. Yeah. Um I, I developed that point of view when we were at Riot Tad, because I remember yeah. going in there and thinking like, we're gonna gamify everything. Like these are game players, and that's great. And I had somebody literally look me in the eye and say, we are all gamers. And if you do that, we will figure out a way to win the game without actually learning anything just to prove that we can do it. And that's when I was like, wait a second, this doesn't work. Uh, Ted, do you have any other perspective on that? It's, it's uh, I think, a combination of the two. Mike, I usually think about it as like bolting on the trappings of games onto other things that clearly aren't games or or have game-like qualities. Uh, but I think, yes, we're we're aligned there. And uh, Bob, I think you had that same revelation in the same way that I did. Yeah. And by the way, I am now newly back into a learning group within a game studio. Yeah. And I'm talking to lots of folks from outside or folks who are new to working in game development. Yeah. And guess what I'm hearing a lot about, Bob? Hey, Tad, I'm so glad to meet you. Uh, I'm glad to finally be working at a game studio. Let's talk about how we can gamify all the learning that we're putting together for these game developers. Right. And I, I have to share my <laughs> love the excitement. It is a valid tool, but this audience may be slightly different for you for exactly the reasons that you uh, mentioned. And also too, the kind of other layer of that's related to that. Again, it's a unique position to be in, yeah. but I think it's informative for other types of game-based learning too is 
the folks that we would be developing that training for are professional game developers and game designers. They are way better at it than you will ever be. <laughs> yes. And they will yep. pick it apart, not just to prove you wrong, but also just because they can't stop doing that <laughs> because that's their normal mode. Yeah. I think where it might spill over into kind of uh, game-based learning in general, uh, I think probably and for simulation as well, is everybody's a gamer now. And a, a, a larger subset, I think, every year of folks who play games are also getting interested in how games work and understand the mechanics of them. Board games are becoming more popular. I think, um, Michael, you'll uh, probably have a view on this too. Board games demand that you uh, understand how game mechanics work because you're in charge of making them work right. and they're visible to you unlike in a video game. So again, just by virtue of that, more folks are, are aware of mechanics even if they don't know what they're called or how they work. So it is, I think, an additional kind of layer of challenge perhaps with with game-based learning so the, the whole idea of like making games for gamers it reminds me so i have a friend who's a professional uh, pastry chef and mm. it's like i'm not gonna make pastries for her <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no she she would say they're wonderful she's a lovely person she wouldn't right. be rude about it but when when you're entrenched in it you have to think about it uh you know in a different way so i could totally see that challenge <laughs> now i do think i agree with you that like everyone has some aspect of gaming but I mean, I think there is definitely a difference between kind of people that design the experience, just like learning designers, right? Like For as sure. learning designers, how often do we take an e-learning course right. or a in-person course? And we spend 90% of the time just picking it apart. Like that, that was a poor facilitation technique. Yeah. They, they shouldn't have thanked them there. That, that stifled discussion. Like, yeah. So it, yeah, there's that, that, that's interesting. I hadn't, you know, worked in a game design studio before. It's a good perspective. It's like when I take a, a learning test, uh, right, to kind of pre-test out. I know how to design tests, right? So it's pretty easy. I, I, I normally right. get 90 to 100% on those things. And it's not because I know the material. It's because I know how to design it. You know how to write a test. Yeah, exactly. yep. so, I, yeah. so I've got a question. So, Tad, you've, had, you've seen a lot of student-created games. And, Micah, you've created a lot of games. What are the strangest games or strangest designs that you guys have either done yourself or seen Ooh, in your in your sphere that's interesting well when i teach i try to steer students towards doing weird stuff because it's more interesting to me as well um unfortunately more often than not you know they would want to recreate a favorite game of theirs rather than do something super weird however um what's been interesting is because what a lot of the classes that i used to teach were housed in the engineering department um i would try to open up space and even teach specific classes to think about uh, alternative controller methods, um, using hardware in ways that it wasn't meant to be used. Um, so I've had students do interesting things with like old broken connects and using like the camera and the um, So that was, that's the, the, the Xbox device that would- Correct. Would view you in 3D space and you could move and your character would move on screen. Yeah. Correct. And when you kind of hack into that, you kind of get direct access to both the camera, which is just like a web camera that you would have, but also it's also painting a grid onto the physical space in front of it so that it can read that spatial depth information. You get some basic depth information. So students using that as a way to kind of inform uh, like AI behavior, like mechanical behavior of um, objects in an environment. So if you look at something, it knows you're looking at it, but using kind of hacky technology that you wouldn't normally use for that. Um, and then the other thing is I usually teach classes where I have students adapt uh, either a video game or some other media into a board game. Um, and we've had all sorts of really interesting things. Making uh, Katamari Damase into a board game um, <laughs> was 
really interesting. And of course, they made me one of the objects on a card that you can pick up. So Ted, you have to exp- you have to explain Katamari. Oh, how, how <laughs> so, do you even start? It's right? a great game. Yeah. Well, you have to sing the theme song. Well, which <laughs> I will resist the urge to do. Um, we don't want to get learning geeks in trouble with uh, music rights. Fair enough. Oh, that's right. um, that's right. But yeah, it's a it's a PlayStation Two originally a PlayStation Two game in which you're uh, a little character who is the prince of the cosmos, if I remember correctly. Um, he is pushing around a thing called a katamari, which is basically a like a, a ball, like a rubber ball with nubbins on it that st- stuff sticks to. You start at like ground level floor size, like you're probably a centimeter high. And as you roll over things, the ball gets bigger and you can pick up bigger things. Um, it does sound really weird. It does, to describe totally. Right the, now, and the, the scale way. changes, right? So, yes. you know, then you're picking yes. up cars and then you're picking up like giant buildings and yeah. But the but the way the students worked that into their tabletop game was collecting cards with objects on them and using that as a gauge of when you can move on to the next. You needed a certain number of a certain size card to move on to the next one. Yeah. So it was a really mm-hmm. interesting way to kind of do a one to one with that mechanic. Yeah. And, you know, one one interesting thing about that, Tad, which actually is a little bit different, but it put the idea in my head mm-hmm. is game mechanics are not copyrightable. Right. Correct. So, so mm-hmm. like, if you ever wondered why Words with Friends was able to create Words with Friends <laughs> and not basically pay all of their money to Hasbro for Scrabble rights, it's because you can't copyright game mechanics. So as a learning person who is interested ah. in maybe mm-hmm. creating some learning games, that might be a good place to start, right? It's like, you know, if you're at home playing Wingspan, for example, which my wife and I call Bird Game. Uh, you know, that's cute. It, it is a game about creating like a nature habitat for birds and bringing birds in there and feeding them and nests and all of that kind of stuff. But the actual game, the mechanics is you're trying to build this synergistic self-sustaining engine so that no matter what happens, you're always growing your little world. Like, right. it could be about birds. It could be about robots. It could be mm-hmm. about ants, or it could be about your actual factory that you run. And so, you know, if you're playing a board game and you're like, wow, this kind of reminds me of something at work, you could take the mechanics of that game and you could do a quick pilot of that, kind of put it into your world. And then you're having kind of that, that first type of learning game that Micah talked about that is a little Mm -hmm. metaphorical or maybe even going into a simulation. Yeah, I think that, so that gets really interesting. And this actually ties up to your earlier conversation about dislike of gamification. Okay. Because <laughs> you ask about, so I do tons of prototypes. I, I work with lots of designers. We do prototype nights all the time. And one of the challenges that people do when they're really early on is they, they start from the mechanic and try and build out from there. And sometimes yeah. it's totally appropriate, but sometimes it's actually just one step deeper, a form of gamification right. where they're like, oh, well, I... I like, you know, in this game where I draw five cards and then I disc th- card three cards and then I have to play them both and one's good or bad. And they're like, oh, I like that mechanic. And they'll justify it into learning. But then what we'll run into is you'll end up just adding like fun mechanics onto uh, concepts hmm. sometimes. Because in, in real life, you know, I'm not limited by three strategic choices. And my boss doesn't come down and say, well, you brainstorm five ideas, trash two of them. <laughs> like they, they, don't, they don't do that. So sometimes 
we can grab mechanics and then try and bolt them on. And then we actually ended up weakening, weakening a little mm-hmm. bit of the, the metaphor of the learning. But I think it's still a great point that playing games and learning about the, met- the, the metaphorical um, mechanism structures are great. Where, where it's really fun, at least from a learning design perspective, mm-hmm. is when we start primarily from the objective and then we say like, okay, uh, and this is a personal philosophy of mine, is like, so we start with learning objective and then we immediately flip it and say, I don't care what I want to teach them. I actually want to see what are the reasons why they're not doing this thing in the first place. Mm. So I want them to do X. Mm. Why are they doing Y? What is the legitimate reason they're not doing X? And then you take that objection and then turn that into a mechanic. Yes. So so then it's all of a sudden like, you know, maybe it is limited resources. So right. I do have 10 options, but I only have money for two of them. That's the reason I'm not doing the thing you want me to do. Now make a game mechanic that reflects that problem. Yeah. And then inevitably the learnings will come out of that once you've created like a metaphorical, honest mm. world yeah. using the mechanics, then the learning comes out of it. Bob, this reminds me of a thing that we've talked about a few times, which is the kind of relationship between the process of making good learning experiences and making good games. And that if you can apply what we use, what Mike was talking about, tons of prototypes, testing things, iterating on things, often there isn't time or kind of the inclination to do that with learning. But I think I've seen something similar to this happen with designing learning, which is like, hey, here's a format that we have whatever it is that I need to teach, I'm going to put into that format because it's something I know or I have, or I have a tool for delivering online uh, asynchronous learning. So I I don't care what topic it is, I'm gonna jam it into this format because it's what I have or know. And I think it's the same thing. I think it's, I think what Mike is saying is really important is kind of trying to do the best that you can to kind of marry in this case, uh, game mechanics or a game system either existing or that you kind of design or that you kind of Frankenstein together from multiple sources so that it resonates and reinforces what the actual point of what you're doing is. I should also mention, Micah, you can back me up in this. That is hard to do. Yes, yes, that is accurate. But you know, one one very practical thing that you said there, Tad, that our listeners can walk away with if they're thinking about doing something like this is the prototype early and often. Yep. And and Tad, you probably just saw me reach into my little cabinet. Do, do you remember? Do you remember this? <laughs> oh, I do I'm indeed. Show, what I'm showing is uh, one day Tad and I were working on a learning game together, and I think we got about half an hour into discussing the topic, and Tad's like, "Let's try it." And he goes back, <laughs> you know, and he gets a, a deck of, of empty cards, which you can buy really easily. They're very cheap. Yeah. And we just whipped it out in pen and we were playing version one of this, like within an hour of first conceptualizing it, you know, and then we did 250 other prototypes between us and bringing in the learners <laughs> and stuff like that. So yeah. if you're doing a learning game, that's a really good pro tip is plan to iterate early and often. I, I'm wondering like what other what other tips would you guys have for people who wanna to give this a try? Yeah, I, I wanna add on to what you just said a little bit. Yeah. One of the idioms that we have is if it's pretty or it makes sense, you're testing it too late. <laughs> So that's great. <laughs> it, 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 like that's, yes. it, that's just one of our, our things. I love that. You have tested, you have tested earlier than that. Yeah. Another thing that uh, we like to do is, is called white card prototyping, yep. 
where we'll actually we'll actually have blank cards. So I know you said you had cards and you wrote stuff on them. Yeah. We will often play an entire game with completely oh, blank cards. Interesting. Where you'll sit down and like you have a, you have a core concept, you have your objectives you're trying to hit, and you'll sit down with blank cards and you'll say, "Well, I'm going to play a card and it's going to let me do these two things." And then you grab a, yeah. a cube and you put them on the table. And it's like, oh, those are the things. Okay, I'm going to move them up too. All right. Why did I do that? Um, well, there's a goal over there I'm trying to get to that represents delivering a vaccine. Okay, perfect. What's getting in the way of us delivering the vaccine? And then someone else grabs and says, well, there's a chance it might fail. And they grab a die and they roll a die. And they're like, I rolled a two. <laughs> uh, like, let's see, what does that mean? All right, a two. It, it failed. So we, we have to throw away that batch. And then they, they literally you, you play the game with completely blank wow. components and then you just write down while you're going through like mm-hmm. okay what things hit what things gave me an aha and it, it, it's uh it's, it's a very freeing way because often in learning we have this kind of paradigm of we need to understand everything and then package it or we need to go out and do a bunch of SME interviews and then package it and we need to have everything understood but most of the, the problems we deal with in learning are kind of like deeper human understanding problems. They're, they're, they're not content, their mindset shift, their behavior, mm-hmm. their trade-offs, all of those things as humans we can relate to. So we can just dive in and start just building stuff and then backfill content. And then to your point in the 200 iterations, once you put actual content, you're like, oh, that idea was fun. Didn't quite fit. Right. Let's call it. Let's yeah. change it. Uh, and then you kind of add Add color to the white card as you go through. It's, I can tell a family it. game night at Micah's is a blast. Here, I've got, I've got a bunch of nothing. Let's make a game out of it. Yeah, let's redesign. Yeah, let's fix this too. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Dana, you know what that makes me think of is it, it, I kept thinking like this is like something out of a Lewis Carroll novel. Like this seems like something that would happen yeah. a- after the mad tea party. It's like, hey, we're going to play a game now, Alice. Here's all the blank cards and pieces. Let's go. It's uh, it's Calvin Ball. If anyone's yes, familiar with it that. is. Oh my gosh, it is. I love that. That's great. That's great. Dana, you should ask questions because otherwise I'm going to go too deep, and this is going to get way too game nerdy. <laughs> well, and this is learning geeks, not game geeks. I do have a question, um, and that is around: Are there generational differences when you're designing games? Either mm. either generational or like in a large company like ours, you've got you know, analysts, and then you've got managing directors. What are some of the considerations either level-wise or age-wise that that you need to, maybe you don't, maybe it's you design a game and everybody loves it. Michael, what have you seen in your, because this is very much kind of an area that you're working more often than I am. Like, what is what do you see? I can tell you my opinion from my vantage point, but I'd love to hear from you. Sure, yeah, yeah. I guess for me, it's been less about kind of age and generation, and it's more about audience and intention for me. Mm. Mm-hmm. So uh, everybody, so most people want to feel accomplished. Most people want to feel clever. Most people want to win. Like most people have that aspect to them. The question is, is how much barrier we put in front of their ability to gain those feelings. And so sometimes when you have people that uh, have a very high level audience, so you, like for example, you know, you always have the executive summary where the executive is like, well, there's a 500 page book. Can you give me the two page (laughs) version of it? It's not necessarily generational, it's attention and drive. And they can only justify X amount of attention for the outcome that you're going to get, right? And then you'll have other people, and even sometimes those same people, they'll read the 600 page novel for fun because they get intrinsic value out of it. 
So for us, uh, it's it tends to less be generational, age, even audience level. It's more like what is the what is the value the user sees in this, and how much effort are they willing to put in uh, for that value? Mm. If, if I put a low level conceptual game in front of an executive audience and ask three hours of their time, I will get laughed out of the yeah. room. But if you put a really strategic, deep evaluation competitive game and I get a room of 15 executives and told them they're going to compete over the next six hours, they'll do it. It's, it's just, it's just a different sort of thing. And then that goes a little bit into the actual delivery too. If we're talking a digital game or something that you're playing through an LMS or something like that, um, the, the amount of effort they're willing to sit and stare at the computer is different than, you know, if I'm playing a mobile game and, and things like that. So I guess I'm seeing it less generational and more kind of audience and uh, kind of value pull out of it is. I think um, I also tend to kind of try not to think about things kind of in generational buckets because I do think it can be it can be fraught. And I do, I like the idea of just thinking more generally about your audience and your intent for them. However, there are a couple of areas where I think there can be some um, some areas that are colored a little bit by someone's background and often that's generational. And sometimes that has to do with like, the mechanism or the metaphor that you might use for a game. Um, I've got two examples. One is uh, I just saw a demo from a vendor of some like learning stuff that they wanted to, to show off to us. And it was interaction um, using a chat bot. Um, and they were very excited because this seemed like a really forward thinking, fresh new thing. And all I could think was, I will close a web page if a chatbot ever appears to right. me ever. <laughs> like my interaction with your tool slash game slash learning is zero. Yeah. Um, and I gave them that feedback and they slash were very- clip. Yeah. They were, yes, yes. exactly. It was Paperclip. like Clippy is back. <laughs> That's a different context that I have. And maybe some folks who have a similar background to me might have. They were very surprised to get that feedback from me because it hadn't occurred to them because they thought like based on the research they had done with a certain mm. audience that they thought that was something that people were comfortable doing, which is, which it is for some people. Um, the other example was um, I was playing a board game with my students as kind of like, it's the end of the quarter. Let's just play a game together. And it was a party game. Um, it was called Monikers. Monikers is a game that um, relies on uh, cultural literacy and a knowledge uh, across musical artists, books, I think I could probably make the same argument for a game like Trivial Pursuit. Yeah. We basically had to stop playing after about 10 minutes because my students had n almost none of the cultural reference used by this particular game. They had the reference points that I had and they had were completely different. So me trying to give them clues, we yeah. didn't have the right context to make that work. No fault of the game, no fault of the students, no fault of me. It just was a mismatch as far as the key mechanic that we didn't have access to the tools that we needed. Uh, yeah, good insights. Um, we, we are getting close to the end of our time. So there, there's one quick question I want to ask, and then I've got another fun one. Is And Tad, this is probably more directed at you, but I'm really interested in Micah's perspective because you and I haven't really talked about this, is Dungeons & Dragons is like... Here hitting, it is. I've been waiting right, for this. It's, hitting, it's a renaissance right now. Like there are way more people yep. playing D&D now than they ever did when we were kids. And uh, for, for lots of reasons, I don't want to get into that. But Tad, you have a a proficiency. Uh, you're kind of my idol when it comes to tabletop <laughs> role-playing games, uh, even though we've never been at a table together. Um, 
how, how do you think we might leverage that, that people are really into this sort of thing right now to create corporate learning experiences? It's well, so I think this speaks really well to some of the things we already talked about. And I think this is, I think this feels like, Micah, this feels like an intersection between kind of games and simulation. Mm. Um, because it, I think one of the people that, one of the reasons I think a lot of folks are gravitating towards this one is a social aspect. It's a framework to just hang out with your friends. It's a storytelling. Everyone loves storytelling. It's collaboration. Folks like collaboration. Um, you can add as much or as little conflict as you'd like, depending on how much combat combat you want to add into the mix. Um, but I do think that, um, there is something kind of also about it, which is um, kind of the core thing about early play for kids is you can try things out. You can be another person and with very low risk or no risk, do things that you would never do in your real life or that you might be afraid to, that may actually wind up giving you confidence in your real life to try some things elsewhere, but it's that safe kind of safe space to explore things um, with all those other things. I think there are components of that that we could bring um, to uh, game-based learning, to just game design, to other types of game design, or just to straight up learning, kind of making those spaces for those things that people really get a lot out of and have value. So I love Dungeons and Dragons. Sweet. You probably don't know this about me. Role-playing games in general. Actually, I've been able to play Dungeons and Dragons lately because, you know, COVID and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but I think that there's a huge opportunity in that for exactly the reasons uh, you know, you're mentioning. And what I think was really interesting is there's lots of other games systems other than D&D that also kind of focus on that too. So like D&D has a little bit of a reputation for being a little crunch heavy. Yeah. You've got lots of numbers and things like that. But there are other games that are more like, a, like I don't know if you all have been involved in any of the Powered by Apocalypse games or mm -hmm. Dungeon World, yes. uh, things like that that are much more kind of narrative story-based yeah. experiences, yep. much very, very rules-light. You know, yep. you can read a half paragraph and you can get in and play immediately, but can have a lot of those same experiences where it's, it's safe space experiences, it allows you to try different things, it's crafting. I think there's, uh, like crafting a story and narrative, but yeah, there's, there's huge opportunities for that. I actually uh, have a friend named Banana who does... Uh, business LARPs, and they are full-on crafted uh, crafted LARPs specifically towards content objectives and things like this. So there there are people there are people that are doing that. It's it's always a little bit of a challenge uh, to kind of get some additional buy-in. Um, yeah, but it, it it's definitely a way to go down. And when we tweak it into that perspective, I think that you mentioned it is is kind of simulated soft skills practice. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is a great way to think that through. It, it is a framework for simulated soft skills practice while acknowledging trade-offs and behaviors, which sounds a lot more business palatable than, hey, we're going to go do a role-playing game. But functionally, it's pretty much the same, right? Yeah. And I'm going to take that one step further and say, I actually think it is practical, actual soft skills practice in Absolutely. many cases. Um, every year, I think I, I get a little more firmer in my convictions that um, being a game master, being a dungeon master um, in any kind of tabletop role-playing game is fantastic leadership training, is fantastic manager lead, uh, training. It is um, taking the temperature of a room, being aware of everybody and how they're reacting to things, making sure that everyone has a voice in the room, yep. yeah. um, being able to make adjustments on the fly, 
deviating from a plan that you might have to further the objectives of the group that's in front of you that may be the new information that you didn't have. Like this is all stuff I am actively using every time I, I run a game and also that I'm watching when I'm playing in other folks' games, how they handle those things and how they use those skills. I was pretty late to the game in, no pun intended, um, to playing in other folks' games, to watch how they run a game, to learn from the way that they run their table. Um, and I learned a huge amount from that. And now I try to take advantage of that opportunity whenever I have it. So I think it's it could be both uh, simulation, but also like active directive practice. Absolutely. Anyway, we're way over time, guys, as I knew we would be. So this is fantastic, but we will definitely have you on again. We're going to part two this and probably part three and part X. <laughs> it eventually will just yeah, become yeah, yeah. them listening to our real play role play right. games. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. Live by, by the way, I, I was going to say on the video game wise is I'm, you know, I'm waiting to get back into World of Warcraft for like somebody who works mm. at blizzard now to get me into yeah, the boy. beta to, to help you out yeah. i don't boy, know yeah. the new expansion i don't know I don't know. Mm. I don't know who could do that but anyway until then on behalf of micah and tad and dana this is bob saying hope you learned something about learning hope you learned something about games hope you can marry them together and stay tuned for the next episode of the learning geeks podcast and we'll talk to you then thanks everybody goodbye thanks everybody thanks bye